Welcome to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. For today's podcast, we're really excited to have Dr. Tom Ross from across across the globe in uh, Tasmania. Tom Ross is Professor of Food Microbiology at the Center for Food Safety and Innovation. He's the director of the ARC Training Center for Innovative Horticultural Products at Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. Tom is a food microbiologist specializing in mathematical modeling of the microbial ecology of foods, which is important science for innovation in food safety management and food preservation. Tom has written over 150 scientific papers and book chapters on food microbiology and has served on numerous expert committees concerned with science food safety management for the Australian government and industry organizations and international organizations, including the United Nations, FAO, and WHO, and particularly GEMRA and the US FDA. He serves on the editorial board of several international microbiology journals. He was appointed to the ICMSF in 2008. In 2017, he was appointed to the ICMS International Committee for Food Microbiology and Hygiene of the IUMS. Tom is energetic in translating the results of science into practical outcomes for people and society, in addition to internationally recognized published academic outputs in microbial ecology and physiology. Tom and his team developed mathematical models and science-based decision support software tools that are in the public domain, thank goodness, and are now widely used for the food industry uh, and by governments in Australia and internationally for food safety risk management. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tom Ross. Hi, Tom. Peter, it's a great pleasure and a great opportunity for me to be able to um, be able to be part of this and to, to have a chat with you about the, the food safety work that I do. Yes, absolutely. It's great to hear. I'm excited to hear about your perspectives. Obviously, being in Australia, Tasmania, you have a different outlook on things, and you're facing similar risks and similar food safety challenges, of course, but I'm sure there are some nuanced differences. We're, we're interested in hearing about those. Um, why don't we jump into research, and we can see where the conversation takes us. What are you working on these days? Um, we do a fairly diverse range of things and mostly the work that we do comes to us from uh, other people who want us to be able to provide some advice for them. So whilst we're a really strong group in microbial ecology and physiology of foods, we apply those skills to the problems that people bring to us. So I don't sort of have a particular research stream other than uh, being able to do uh, research in microbial ecology and physiology and how that relates to food safety and also food preservation. But as an example, so maybe over the last three or four years, we've done quite a large project on understanding the microbial ecology of raw milk cheeses and how pathogens react in a raw milk cheese compared to how they might react in a pasteurised milk cheese. Um, cool. We've done quite a bit of work about uh, bacillus cereus which is potentially a pathogen in dairy products so it 
it's always present in dairy products. And what the industry wants to know is, is it a, is it a risk to consumers under different sets of circumstances? And so we've done a lot of work about understanding its potential for growth or its potential for inactivation, uh, particularly what does it do if you, if you take a, um, a heated product, um, what happens down during the, the cooling process? Do they grow to unacceptable numbers? Uh, we've had a very long association with the Australian, the Australian meat industry. And so recent work has been about developing new interventions um, for elimination of E. coli or other enteric pathogens on uh, beef and sheep, sorry, sheep meat carcasses, yep. Uh, but at the same time, while we're doing that, we're also developing models for the shelf life um, of Australian red meat products in export system. So, for example, uh, a beef carcass in a vacuum pack, cry cryogenic pack, um, should last about 160 days if you keep the temperature correct. But if you don't, then the question is, well, how much shelf life did you lose? And so the work we've been doing aims to assess, well, if you don't have ideal storage conditions, what's the consequence uh, for the shelf life of the product and, and how would you manage that? So it's not just about food safety, it's also about food integrity, food shelf life, food quality. Um, we've just picked up some work about uh, understanding what we can do to manage listeria monocytogenes in rock melons. There was a, an outbreak in Australia about 18 months ago, which caused, I think, 20 cases and seven deaths. So the Australian industry has become very interested in managing listeria monocytogenes in rock melons. Um, and that's the sort of applied stuff that we do, but we've also got a little sort of separate interest in understanding fundamental limits to growth rates of any kind of life on earth, but usually microbial, um, as a function of temperature. And whilst that seems quite theoretical, it fits in very naturally to the work that we do on being able to predict the growth rate of organisms in food. You can say, well, you know, this is the worst it could ever be because we've got the data now that says this is as fast as anything will ever grow. And that kind of puts an upper limit to what you might expect. And that's quite useful in trying to do food safety and quality management. And just more recently, we've been looking at a, an organism called Vibrio nitrogens, which has attracted a lot of attention, potentially in the world of biotechnology. And we were kind of looking at some of the claims that were being made about that. So we do food safety, we do supply chain tracking, we have technologies where we, we try to develop and support the development of technologies where you can, you can follow the product integrity through a supply chain. So yeah, we do lots of stuff and it's good fun. Wow, that's a very diverse uh, stream of work. Let me ask you, um, before we get into, I mean, I've, that piqued my interest every one of those, but let me ask first, as far as to understand the, the framework in which you're doing this type of work, can you describe um, for the listeners, your laboratory, um, you know, how, how large of it is it? What sort of equipment do you have? And what sort of a, a how many you know postdocs or staff or or students do you work with um it's actually a fairly small group i reckon we'd be less than 10 i've got a two or three postdocs and we're always trying to bring um honest well in our system it's called an honest student or um phd students and master students through and we get them to to do projects that just bit by bit contribute to the overall effort that we do. We don't have much sophisticated equipment. It's a fairly standard lab. Probably what we have more of than most labs is lots and lots of incubators and water baths um, and, a, and a device called a temperature gradient incubator, which enables us to do growth rate determinations on 
an organism, but maybe over 30 different temperatures, but basically in one experiment. So what we can do is accumulate lots of data about growth rates for a particular organism, and then we turn those into predictive models. Mm -hmm. um, and can use those to make predictions about well if if we link the characteristics of the food the ph the water activity if there are organic acids present and the temperature of, of storage we can make what we think are fairly reliable predictions about what the organism is going to do and that's where this stuff about supply chain monitoring comes in so if you can if you know what the composition of the food is if you can monitor the temperature over time during a supply chain, you can make reasonably useful predictions about what's the what's the status of that product, both in terms of its quality remaining or shelf life remaining, but also the safety of the product with regard to pathogens that might be potentially present. Mm -hmm. So smaller scale studies using um, uh, food matrices in, in smaller quantities, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the work we, we do, we've done in broth because it's quicker and easier. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can generate a lot of data very quickly that way. But then there's always that, that last step that says, well, that was nice, but it was in a broth. How does that apply to the real food? And usually it applies pretty well. So uh, I think I mentioned the stuff with Bacillus cereus. Most mm -hmm. of that's been done in milk or dairy spreads and dairy products. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, it generally holds up as long as you can measure the most important parameters. as a temperature, pH, water activity. Uh, preservative levels and usually the preservatives are organic acids all of that can be tied together to start to make predictions mm -hmm. um, sensible predictions about what what might be the the fate of pathogens or the potential for growth or the potential for spoilage organisms in that product over time um, are you able to measure the microbiome of of raw milk cheese during the fermentation process and the impact on bacillus or how are you approaching the the complexity of that um, of the microorganisms in that matrix versus a pasteurized milk. Uh, I think what we were, well, and I'll, I'll summarize it very quickly. So when we did the research, the last step of that research was to actually make cheeses. Um, and we went out locally and we sourced raw milk from goats and cows. And then we took that back to the lab. We pasteurized half the milk that we got and we made exactly the same cheese with the raw milk, as we did with the pasteurized milk, we used the same starters, we inoculated them with the same challenge organisms. And what we found was that there is very, very, very little difference between a between the fate of a pathogen in a raw milk cheese and the fate of a pathogen in the identical cheese made from the same milk after pasteurization. So all of the stuff about the microbiome really isn't that important. It all comes down to temperature, pH, organic acid levels, water activity. Yeah, we, we were kind of pleasantly surprised because there isn't a, there's an idea out there in the, in the world that says a raw milk is inherently safer because it still contains antimicrobially active compounds. Well, it doesn't hold up when you actually do the experiments. And we made, I think, 40, 40 challenge trials, five different kinds of cheese. Uh, each one of them was done in duplicate, but with a different pair of challenge organisms. So effectively we had 40 challenge trials, 20 raw and 20 equivalent cheeses made from the same milk, but after pasteurization. Um, and there is no difference in the fate of the pathogens in those products. So there is nothing special about raw milk in terms of yeah. uh, its inherent safety. No, it's, it's, it's just not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, bacillus is often overlooked 
so it's good to hear you're working on that organism. Yeah, I think it, the bacillus really wasn't an issue in the cheese because the chance of it growing to high levels aren't great. But mm. in a lot of um, heat processed uh, dairy products, what they call dairy spreads and things, mm -hmm. you know, you've got a flavoured compound like a cream cheese and it might have some sauce or something on it or a cream cheese spread. Um, they get heated to about 80 or 90 degrees. And the problem is that doesn't kill bacillus cereus spores, doesn't inactivate them. So it's the, it's the fate of the bacillus cereus during a cooling process. And some of those cooling processes might take days. And so the interest from the, the industry perspective is, does our cooling allow bacillus cereus to get to dangerously high levels in our product? Because the bacillus will always be there in the raw product. It's, it's about, I don't know, uh, one or two cells per 10 or 100 mil. It's a very low level, but the spores are always there. The spores survive the heat treatment. And then as the product cools, when it gets down to the right temperature, they germinate and then there's potential for them to grow. And the question is, can they grow enough to get to dangerous levels uh, during the, the time temperature conditions of the cooling? And that's what we're currently doing at the moment. And again, with the aim of developing a model um, that the, the, the dairy industry can use to evaluate their processes. Yeah, that's great. Did, just out of curiosity, are there nut-based milks and nut-based uh, cheeses and cream cheeses coming on to, into popularity there in Australia? Uh, yes. So <laughs> one of the projects we're just about to start is, and it's more of a contract, this one, it's not really, it's not in-depth research. It's just saying, is your product safe? But there is a, a company that's starting to do nut-based cheese alternatives, I guess. But it is a dairy company, so that's kind of interesting that they're prepared to take that on. Um, mm. But we, we will also assess some nut-based products as alternatives to dairy-based products that are analogous here. So I don't know what the answer is going to be. It'll be interesting. We'll know in about three months' time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned beef shelf life earlier. I assume you, you probably interacted with Ian Jensen with um, Livestock Australia. Uh, I think I've known Ian for 20 years and <laughs> his organisation yeah. have been fairly consistently funding us for probably 12 to 15 years. And so yeah. if you like, my career started because I got a post-doctoral post -doctoral fellowship funded by Meat and Livestock Australia. Um, mm. That was before Ian was part of the organisation, but that relationship has continued with our group for a long time here. Yeah. And that, that provides the stability for us to do all these other interesting things as well. Here we, I work with a lot of meat companies that import a lot of Australian beef. So that's great that you've done that work on shelf life. And mm. so forth. A lot of times when there's an issue uh, over here on a further processed beef product, they want to look back and say, oh, it's it's because it came from Australia and it's so old in terms of shelf life. It's like, well, that's not what the data is showing. <laughs> and I, of course, have to agree with you. It's not. Um, and the, the product, if you store it, I think it's at minus one. It's a beef, a beef side in a cryovac pack. It's good. Mm -hmm. Good for about 160 days at minus one. So when we do this, um, it's not just microbiology. We're actually looking at sensory attributes as well. And so sensorially, um, it's still good for about 160 days if you keep it at about minus one. So, yeah, the 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 total microbial count doesn't change. The total microbial load is dominated by lactic acid bacteria and they're usually quite benign and again mm -hmm. up to 160 days there's usually no evidence of any particular kind of spoilage after that you start to notice it yeah mm -hmm.
influence it? Because we've done so much work looking at microbial ecology um, in general, and we've developed a really big database of knowledge around what's the fastest growth rate of any organism at any temperature. And we've collected data from thousands of species now. And what you find is that at any given temperature, there is a record holder. But if you take the fastest growth rates of whoever the record holder is at any temperature and you plot those as a single plot, it forms a continuous smooth curve, which is kind of interesting, right? It's not, you know, if the thing that grows fastest at 10 degrees doesn't grow anywhere near as fast as the thing that grows fastest at 35 degrees. So if you take the fastest growth rates of the record holders at any given temperature, they themselves form a continuous curve, even though it's based on maybe 15 different species. And so that raises some interesting questions about fundamental limits to uh, the growth rate of anything on the planet. And so we've, we've found nothing that broke the rules, but then, there were some publications around an organism called Vibrio nitrogens, which in the older literature was said to have a growth rate as short as I think a six or seven minute generation time. And from the work that we'd done, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, so we thought, oh, this, this could be the thing that, that breaks the, the general rule that we'd found based on a thousand other species. Somebody's publishing around Vibrio nitrogens and saying it just grows remarkably quickly. And then we did lots of in-house experiments and said, actually, no, in our hands, it doesn't grow remarkably quickly. It's fast, but it's not unusually fast. It's, it's fast. It's the, it's the fastest at its temperature, but that fast growth rate sits exactly on the curve that we would have predicted from all the other data that we have. And so Vibrio nitrogens has been proposed as a tool in biotechnology because of these old reports in the literature that says it grows three times as fast as an E. coli. So, you know, normally E. coli is the organism that we use for biotechnology because we know a lot about it. And so there's a group of proponents who say that Vibrio nitrogens is better because it's faster. So we went back and said, actually, no, it's not. Vibrio nitrogens at its optimum growth temperature, if you do it under controlled conditions, if you do it thoroughly and rigorously, grows a fraction faster than E. coli, maybe five or 10%. So I think we ended up really just wanting to set the record straight and say the, the quality of the science around the proposal that Vibrio nitrogens is fast and unusually fast. Um, is not supported if you look in depth in the literature. There's one report that's never been reproduced. Nobody else has ever been able to do it. Um, but in general, Vibrio nitrogens yeah, doesn't grow that much faster than anything else either. So it's kind of just trying to set the record straight um, because that's the sort of stuff that we do. Not, not trying to set the record straight, but because it's something where we have expertise to say that claim doesn't look right. Yeah. And when you investigate it thoroughly, it's not right. Right. It's, where did you where did you publish that in, in case people want to get looking? We haven't yet. We're trying to. A lot of stuff in the literature around this organism, where people just haven't gone back. They've just quoted everybody else, and mm -hmm. so it's a scientific myth, and that's one that we're trying to rectify because that's not what science is about. Okay. How to do it? We should do it properly. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a good insight into a little bit beyond food microbiology and more mm -hmm. into general so that's nothing good. to do with food microbiology but it's part of what we do yeah
Now you had the tools and the expertise to go after yeah. a scientific question and, yeah. and that's what it's about, as you said. I think it was just looking at it and saying that that just does not make sense from what we know. Mm -hmm. If you look at it really, and I mean, it is a really in-depth paper. It was one of our, our honor students. I was a young, a young woman who did the work and did it so thoroughly that it's just bomb proof. Um, and hopefully it will now get published. We've gone to a different um, journal who mm -hmm. hopefully would treat it respectfully and not, not perpetuate the myths that are out there in the literature. Right. Right. Well, good luck with that. I hope, uh, hope it finally gets into into peer review and publication. Um, so what about, um, what about some of the impacts you're seeing? You mentioned predictive modeling, which is kind of what I've, I've known your work. Uh, I've been familiar with your work in there, but um, what, what are some of the practical impacts you're seeing about research that you're doing? Um, so I, and you might ask me this a little bit later, but I kind of fell into this branch of science. It's not something I went after. But it was an opportunity, I did a PhD, then I got a postdoc and it just kind of flowed on from there. But one of the things that I like to be able to do, and it's about science communication, is saying, okay, we do science, we publish in the right journals and it, it goes to a small audience of people that are like us. But really the value of what we do is to help the food industry and to help consumers. And so it's sort of always been a part of what we've done to say, okay, we know what we're talking about. Now we need to make it available in an in, in easy to use form um, for industry and government regulators to be able to look at it. And again, the beauty of it is if you've got science-based evidence, then there is no longer a disagreement between what the regulator thinks and what the industry people think, because they've got a tool, the tool is science-based and they all kind of go, oh, well, the tool says this, and now we all agree on it because the, the quality of the science behind the tools is good enough. And so the big breakthrough for us was, I think I, mean, I started my PhD in 1990, and I think in 2005, the first real output, the very first real practical output was um, a bit of software that we did, which predicted the growth of E. coli, and we did lots and lots and lots of data and verification and comparison to other people's data. And in the end, we were fairly happy that we had a good model that was applicable to the growth of E. coli on meat, and that could then be used for food safety management purposes, mainly about times and temperatures of distributions of red meat. So as long as it stayed within a certain you know, envelope of time and temperature, the product was considered to be acceptable and safe. And that got to the point where it was picked up by the Australian government and it became part of the decision systems that they used for what they call the export meat regulations in I think 2005. So if you like from, you know, over a period of 15 years, we did the, the work, we did the modeling, we did the science, we built the software. And then the government regulator said, we trust this so much now that we're going to make it part of our law. So to me, that was a great victory because that then set the scene for all the other things that we've done because it provided credibility that um, when we do these predictive models and we've done half a dozen for different sorts of things, people kind of rely on the quality of the work that we've done and say, ah, oh, you know, if it's come from you, Tess, we can trust it. And it, you know, I used to use this diagram that said it was us providing the science as a bridge across a chasm mm -hmm. between the regulators and the industry because normally they didn't see eye to eye. But if you provide science-based evidence and you provide decision support tools and you're kind of like, oh, okay, we all agree. 
that's the rules. And as long as we stick to the rules, there's no disagreement anymore. Um, and as an example of that, so using that bit of software that, as I said, is kind of enshrined in Australian legislation, there was a, a really big cyclone, you call them hurricanes in America, and you've got one at, on your door at the moment, I believe. Yes. Um, there was one, and so in, in Australia, they're coming off the coast of uh, northeast Queensland, and there was one coming, and one of the food, the, the meat processors there knew it was coming, they knew it was a big storm, they knew they'd lose power. Mm -hmm. they, knew they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars worth of um, carcasses in their chillers, and that the temperature would go up before they could get back to save them. So what they did was to chill them down as much as they could before the storm hit, monitored the temperature throughout the event, the cyclone or the, the hurricane event. And I think two days later they came back and they put the power back on. And on the basis of the temperature history they had, they could go to the regulator and say, look, according to the model, the, the, the it's called the, the refrigeration index, but basically it's a model for e-collar growth. According to the model, these products are still safe because they'd cooled them down a lot and that the increase in temperature during the loss of power was not so much that the product actually exceeded the, the limits. And so okay. in that case, because they had the ability to use the model, to take the knowledge from the model and to set up their chillers to bring the temperature of the carcasses down as much as they could, they actually saved that consignment and they didn't lose the product because there was science to support the, the, the safety of the product based on the time temperature histories that they'd collected. So it saved them hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that to me was a really nice practical example of making the science available in a way that the industry can use it and that the government also accepts what they did and said, yep, that's fine, go for it. Absolutely, yeah, that's a great example. Uh, practical application of research. Uh, and I, I love how that's, um, you know, you, the analogy or the, I guess the metaphor you made about the bridging the gap between the science and the industry later. Um, and that is very true. These predictive models are, are now, they're not, you, they're not cited in law here in the, in the US or in North America just yet, but we're starting to see them referred to in compliance guidelines. In other words, yeah. they'll, they'll say these are some of the models that can, that we, we agree are, accurate and can be predictive of microbial behavior in food systems and and therefore they they don't recommend them per se but they do mm. give them their their stamp of approval yeah and I, i've seen that for a number of years and thought well the the american regulators are little, still being a little bit guarded but effectively they're saying well yeah mm. we think there's hope here so that's good and i mean it, it is because the science stands up there's not there's, there aren't I can't think of any real exceptions, by the way. And mostly bacteria behave reproducibly. And, and when I give my lectures to my food micro students, I've got a slide that says, by and large, bacteria can't think. They don't make decisions. They just respond to the environment they're faced with. And as long as you know what they've done in the past by measuring it, and that's what predictive microbiology is about, measure their responses systematically under different sets of conditions, put it into a predictive model, mostly the model gets it right. Talk a little bit about um, Tom. Let's talk about uh, some of the gaps. So you you've seen a large outbreak there, um, listeriosis in rock melon recently. Um, what are the areas that need more research and 
and more intervention on the industry level or regular regulator level yeah and I, that was kind of something i struggled a little bit with because in general i like to think <clears throat> excuse me in general i like to think we know enough about the microbial ecology of foods and the pathogens on them that we can work things out but but that's me i've done this for 30 years as a professional scientist so one of the big things we need to do is to communicate the knowledge and, and the real dangers out there to the food industry. And at the moment, and I think you referred to it before, there's a lot of focus now on fresh produce, raw produce, you know, and, and that now brings with it dangers because we're changing the way that we handle foods. And in the past, produce probably would have been cooked a lot, maybe not so much anymore, and that raises some issues. Um, the rock melon one is still a bit of a mystery to me. I'm not sure why that started going wrong. Um, it may just be that we're much, much, much better at picking up outbreaks when they occur. Um, or the second possibility is as you scale up a business and an industry, you know, if you've got a thousand small producers, it's unlikely that 500 of them are going to have the same problem at the same time. And so you don't get the signal that said there's an outbreak. But if you've got a business that's producing the same volume and now it's only 10 producers and one of them gets it wrong at the same time, their scale of production and the number of consumers that, that get exposed from their production is such that you can detect the outbreak when it happens. And so there are, there are changes in the whole structure of the food system. Supply chains are a lot longer. Mm -hmm. uh, people want to be innovative. They want to do cool, funky stuff. And, and to some extent, we've, we're starting to forget that um, food isn't sterile. Yeah. And food supports the growth of pathogens and food can, be contaminate, can become contaminated with pathogens. And while we're doing all this kind of really cool, you know, edgy stuff with food, let's not forget that foods aren't sterile. And if you don't get it just right throughout the supply chain, there might be some problems when you start to do that. So for me, um, again, I clearly rely on the idea of doing the science that provides the knowledge and then making the knowledge available in a way that people can use that to not get into trouble and to not make their consumers sick. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, a lot of it's about education, education, education. Yeah. Um, is, it, is that part of what you're doing is directing the um, uh, <clears throat> Australian Research Council's Training Centre for Innovative Horticultural Products? Um, that one, yeah, and I think when we did this, I mean, the industry push was what can we do to extend the shelf life of fresh produce because that's what it was all about. And we said, well, we're not going to talk about it overtly because it's not a good story. But no matter what we do, if we start innovating and pushing out the shelf life, we also have to make sure that the product is still as safe as it was before. Yeah. And so it's... Yeah, the, the two go hand in hand. You can't start innovating unless you make sure that the innovation is as safe as the original version. So that's a large part of, and again, it's an unspoken part of what the training centre was about, but it was always the subtext. Whatever you do, make sure the product is as safe as it was before. So that's sort of an outreach. It's, it's an outreach to educate produce industry. And yeah. We, we didn't have to do too much. I mean, some of the, the people we were working with and some of the businesses were quite savvy. They're, they're sophisticated, um, newer businesses, but they were the ones who knew that they were 
processing fruits and veg that were ready to eat. And they were large producers because they were selling directly into supermarkets. So they had a large share of the market. It's possibly the smaller producers who need more education, more support mm -hmm. to say, you know, you need to understand that you're actually making food now and people are going to eat it. Um, and if it's not completely safe, you're going to make people sick. So the outbreak of listeria in rock melons was the beginning of 2018 in Australia. And the consequences of the consequence of that was about half the industry collapsed. So they, they lost half the growers, half the processors because of that outbreak. They just couldn't sustain their business any longer. So a few got through but quite a few suffered. Um, 20 something years ago, there was a, an outbreak from fermented meats with um, intrahemorrhagic E. coli. It made 20 kids sick. Those 20 kids are now young adults and they are still waiting for their kidney transplants, most of them. That's the consequence of getting it wrong. Um, but the same there in that outbreak, because it was associated with fermented meats, not a particular producer, mm -hmm. half the business lost, was lost across the country. They just went out of business because they couldn't sustain it or they couldn't meet the new requirements, whatever it was. So the, the consequences of an outbreak are, for the industry are quite severe. They're quite severe, obviously, for the people that get infected. It's not good either. Um, so what we're sort of trying to do is just bring everybody up to speed and say, look, the world has changed. You know, you're not, you're not growing rock melons and selling them in the local market where the supply chain is short and where you're the number of consumers exposed is very small. You're actually scaled it up to the point where you're probably exposing probably hundreds of thousands of consumers from a single grower's farm because they're getting to that scale. And if you get it wrong, you'll go, you're going to find the people who get sick. And it, you know, you, you might serve a hundred thousand consumers and maybe only three get sick, but that's still three too many. And it, it becomes more apparent now because of the scale of the industry. So again, it's it's saying, you know, the world has changed. Mm -hmm. You, as you scale up, you need to be a lot more sophisticated about what you do, and that's where the education part comes in. And saying, okay, you also need to spend money if you want to if you want to do that volume, then you need to invest in safety as well, because otherwise you'll lose your business. Yeah, well so, said. No, I totally agree. I think that's a that's a very important message. I hope it's. I hope it's not falling on deaf ears. As we haven't started yet, but I mean, they don't know it yet, but it's coming. So, um, and we have to. I mean, that you know, as professionals, we know that. Um, and so it's getting that message across and saying, look, you need to understand. It's not just about more profit or whatever it is. You've actually got a responsibility now to keep people safe. And I don't, I'm not saying that anybody's being irresponsible, but they need to understand that as you scale up, you actually need to do more and more and more things to make sure that the overall integrity and safety of the product is still what it should be. So that's part of our job is educating and saying, this is all stuff we know. There's nothing new here at the moment, but you guys need to know it as well. And so it's, it's that, again, understanding of the changing nature of food supply chains because they're longer. I mean, we, in Australia, we get, uh, what is it? Uh, asparagus. We buy asparagus from America and the, the Mexico and I think in the tip of South America. So in our off season, that's where we get it from. And that's a remarkable supply chain. It is. Yeah. So, and there's a lot that can go wrong in that, in that transit. There's yeah. This, yeah. And that's what I mean. There's just so many more opportunities and so much more handling and yeah. 
you just need a higher level of awareness and professionalism in that sort of an industry. Yes, indeed. You know, it sounds like you've got your, you, you, you have really uh, expressed why you do what you do. You understand the impact and I think you're passionate about it, which is great. Um, but I think, uh, we, I think people like to hear uh, from people on the podcast how they got into this field. It is a very obscure field, actually. It's only, only now becoming more and more uh, known about. Um, so how did you end up in, in food safety, microbiology? And, and tell us yeah. about your career path a little bit. Okay, you, you might not like the answer to this one, but I'll give you the honest answer. Um, I pretty much just tripped over and fell into it. So where I grew up uh, in Tasmania, nobody in my family had ever been to a university. None of my family had a university degree. So it was just like, well, as I was going through school, I got good marks and I thought, well, at some stage, I guess I'll have to go to university. And I got to the end of what we call college here, which is grade 12 before you actually start university. And I thought, I still got no idea what I want to do. So I stopped for a couple of years and worked for a while for the Australian government as a public servant, as a clerk, we call them, clerk. Um, met some people and then we thought, oh, well, we'd, we'd better finally do what we said. We'd better go to university and then thought, I really don't know what I want to do. Um, except that I quite liked nature. So I enrolled in a degree in zoology. And after a little while, I looked around and thought, well, I'm not going to get a job out of this. It is Tasmania. Tasmania is a fantastic, naturally wild place, but I don't think I'm going to get a job. So I moved into something that was a bit more applied and I chose some microbiology subjects and then some biochemistry and got through with those and enjoyed them and probably got good results. But the real trigger to that was after I finished those sort of undergraduate studies, um, somebody I knew said, oh, got a job in a microbiology lab that does food and water testing. Um, we need someone to fill in for three months. Do you want to do it? And I went, yeah, that'd be cool. So I did. And I did that for about three years and learnt lots of really useful things about the importance of quality assurance when you do microbiological testing. And we had some interesting projects that happened around us, but mostly it was just routine stuff. And after about three years, I got sick of it. And so one of my university lecturers just had kind of quietly kept in touch with me and said, oh, Tom, you know, there's this and there's this. And he said, by the way, would you like to start a PhD? And I went, yeah, because I'm really bored with this job now because it's going to be the same thing year after year after year. And so I started the PhD fully believing that when I finished, I'd just go back to the job that I'd left in that um, water and food testing lab. Um, but it didn't quite play out that way. So once I got to the university, I did my PhD and that was good. We got papers and I just never left. And so my career was almost, as I said, almost an accident. But I guess because I'm fairly conscientious about what I do and fairly passionate and I could believe in the value of what I was doing, it was kind of interesting. And it was good fun in universities in those days. There was a lot of excitement, innovative stuff going on. Um, but I just never left. So my career... As I said, it wasn't deliberate, it wasn't intentional, it wasn't the passion that I had before I started. But once I did start, it was something that kept me engaged and has kept me engaged for about 30 something years now. Because there's so much good stuff you can do. Absolutely. Yeah, but I'm so glad that the case uh, you found something that worked and that had important meaning and impact. Are you facing a lot of obstacles these days with, with, you, with working and, and 
researching and getting funding for research and things like that? Um, I think because we do fairly applied science and we have a fairly good reputation for delivering useful outcomes. I said that the software that we deliver is quite useful and there's probably half a dozen pieces and people use them relatively routinely now and, and they know who we are and what we can do. So people tend to come to us and say, hey, can you do? And we go, yeah, I think so. So mm -hmm. I've, I've never really had to go out looking for work. Usually the work comes to us and, and you, you get requests and you say, oh, yeah, I think we can do that. And then whatever, whatever comes to us, it's always a case of how do we weave that in to what we've already done to increase the value of what we've done? So you're kind of building it without sort of deliberately going out and finding money, but you're just saying, okay, this stuff comes in passively, but it builds our sort of body of expertise and our body of knowledge and the things we know about. So that's kind of how we've done it rather than that sort of super ambitious, this is what I want to do, I've got to go and get the money to do it. It's more about this is the general area that we work in and as work comes to us, we say, how do we translate that into advances in science? So whatever we do, we try and put a very strong science underpinning to it. So we, we don't do a lot of work that's quick and dirty. Everything we do, we do in a way that's, I guess, publishable and that's kind of the, the bottom line. It's, it's usually publishable and that's the quality that we work to. Mm -hmm. Good, that's great. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of, of our time. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, probably not, but I, I guess I look around and I think in a way it's a little bit frustrating because there's a lot of people out there who know all about food safety management, food microbiology, and and we could solve a lot of problems. We could reduce a lot of the numbers of cases of um, outbreaks if we could just get that knowledge spread out there amongst other people as well. Um, I don't think the food industry is full of cowboys. I know that in some places it is. <clears throat> There's a few. Um, but bit by bit, they're getting squeezed out, I think. So it's, again, well, I guess what I was saying before, um, really... Um, being able to communicate the work that we do, being able to build a scientific career at the same time. To me, that's that's always been, I don't know if it's a challenge, but it's always been what I wanted to do. So, yep, I've got to build a career, but at the same time, um, I don't want to be the sort of academic who just does work that nobody else really cares about apart from a few other academics. Um, and all, of, all the people that we've trained, they've all gone on to do things that are quite relevant and serve society. They use science, they're smart, um, and they use use their knowledge to improve, I guess, food safety management around the planet. Um, and I guess, if, yeah, one, one last little thing would be that when I first started this process and it, you know, it started a, a degree in predictive microbiology, if you like, and got through it and said, wow, this stuff really works. That was pretty cool. We're pretty excited and confident and cocky that, yeah, you know, we've actually done something quite clever here. Um, but when you start to apply it in the real world, you realise that yeah, okay, there's this whole realm of randomness and stochasticity and improbable events, but the ones that actually make people sick. And so the next big challenge is to say, well, we know, we know what should happen if we knew what was there to start with. Now the challenge is to start to say, but how likely is it to occur? And if it does occur, what are the consequences? So it's the whole idea of risk assessment now and just saying, you know, there's there's the ideas of probability of an outcome, the severity of the outcome. How do we put all that together to make 
food safety management systems that aren't so expensive that nobody can afford the food anymore. So there's there's a whole new level now of sort of expertise, interpretation, thinking that says, how do you manage a system that's kind of random and variable and still achieve um, public health safety? Well, again, thank you so very much. I really appreciate your, your insights and your um, experience that you shared. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Peter. Um, yeah, and hopefully a few people are interested enough to get in touch with me as well. That'd be really cool. It'd be lovely to okay. talk to some other people about it. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Tom, and take care. Cheers now. Bye, Peter. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.